I'm trying to avoid this being an extensive and exhaustive teaching on the demonic, but in order to set up the understanding of our power to judge them and our authority to judge them, it's necessary to talk in the skimpiest of terms, in the most in the sketchiest of ways, about the demonic. I want to uh, continue this discussion in which we've talked about uh, the difference between um, Tartarus, Gehenna and Hades and why Tartarus is referred to as the abyss uh, because in terms of the hopelessness of escape and the powerlessness of the ones contained in the abyss it's bottomless as in it's hopeless. There is no, no possibility. It's maximum, it's a maximum security prison into which they are put, from which they can only come when God lets them out. And we know He let some He let them who are in it out when it's time for them to be judged. This is, of course, uh, from the book of Revelation 9. Uh, verse 11 that says um, there was a, uh, and, and Revelation 20 that says an angel came who had the key to the abyss. But I want to start that, uh, this section of the discussion with a reference to Luke chapter 10, verse 17. Jesus had sent out the 70 and when they returned, uh, they were giving a report. Verse 17 of Luke 10 says, Then the seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Your name, of course, we all understand, is being your authority. Jesus sent out the disciples. This was before Jesus was crucified, before He died, rose again, ascended to to the throne of God and gave the order of His church that had to do with distribution of gifts of the Spirit by which He empowered the church to act in the world. Paul speaks of that in Ephesians 6, and in fact, throughout Ephesians, when he talks about how we engage the enemy. But even before all of that, the, 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 the disciples came back bringing the report that the demons were subject to us in his name, in your name. To which Jesus replied, I saw Satan fall as lightning from heaven. In other words, I was there when he was overthrown. Behold, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions. Is he talking about um, insects? Who are serpents and scorpions? He's talking about the demonic. He's referencing I give you authority to trample on 
serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Does that sound like we are just kind of holding on till the gates of hell decide to back off and not? No, this is the rubbish that people's heads have been filled with by powerless theology that do not see an active connection to being in Christ. Listen to the language of Christ himself, it's written in red for crying out loud. And the God of peace shall soon crush Satan underneath your feet. That's how Paul ends the first chapter of the book of Romans. Do we have authority over these creatures? Absolutely. Now, there ought be no further discussion as to whether or not we have authority to judge angels in this life. So what then is our judgments? What are the sanctions? What do we instruct angels to do with demons? You notice that they were seeing that they were seeing demons run at the mention of the Lord's name. And Jesus conflates their story of the demonic being put to flight by Satan being put to flight. So what is Jesus doing? He's equating the fallen angels, the ones who fell with Satan, with the demonic activity that his disciples were evidencing and and talking about the power that they have over the demonic. Uh, uh, Might I remind you again? Behold, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. They had come back and said, we saw demons flee. He puts demons in the category of angels who fell and renewed their understanding of the authority he had given to them. Once again, I remind you of 1 Peter chapter, or 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, where, if, where it says, If God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to the abyss. Who are the occupants of the abyss? Angels that sinned. Now look at this from the book of Luke chapter 8. Luke 8 at verse 31. Luke 8, 31 says the following. It's talking about Jesus, a man who came, cried out and fell down before Jesus. This was when Jesus was in the country of Gadara, in the land of the Gadarenes opposite to Galilee. And when he stepped out, verse 27, when a man stepped out on the land, or when Jesus stepped out on the land, there he met there met him a certain man from the city who had demons for a long time. He wore no clothes and so on. Now then, the demons uh, would seize him and throw him to the ground and so on, and he cried out to Jesus. 
When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of God, the Most High? I beg you, do not torment me. Now who is speaking? The demons. Because Jesus, Jesus addressed them. Jesus said, ask him saying, verse 30, what is your name? And he didn't give him a name like John or, 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 or Paul or something else. He said, my name is Legion, for we are many. But before we, I get to that, the demons begged Jesus not to torment them. And for he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For it had often seized him, kept him under guard, bound him in chains, and so on and so forth. When Jesus asked him, saying, What is your name? He said, Legion, because, because many demons have entered him. And he begged him that he would not command them to go into the abyss. Follow with me, follow the bouncing ball. Fallen angels were sent to the abyss. That place is called Tartarus. Reference 2 Peter 2, chapter 2, verse 4. I saw Satan fall as lightning from heaven. Now there are demons in this man who is begging Jesus not to send them to the abyss, to Tartarus or Tartaru, as it's called. Fallen angels and demons are the same creatures. The, some are held in the chains in darkness. Others have been allowed to operate on the earth, but know they're subject to the sanction of being sent to the abyss. And they beg Jesus not to do it. We who are in Christ, have exactly that authority over them. Now Jesus sent them into the pigs and even the pigs thought that demons were unclean. And the pigs in general are thought of the, among the most unclean of, of animals. The pigs thought we need to take a bath because these demons are in us. That's of course a, a silly reference. but. The point being that we can command them to the abyss where they're held in chains in darkness, that's the exact language of 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 4. This isn't made up stuff, okay? this is the script, these are the scriptures that speak of the authority we have to confine, to constrain, to limit the activities of the demonic. When, we, when they operate within the measures and spheres of the authority we have, when they act in our domain, they, get, they subject themselves to our authority and we have jurisdiction over them. If they're acting outside of our domains and if they're not within our authoritative jurisdiction, then we let them, we let them be because we don't really have authority over them. If they do nothing within our domains, even if they're doing things that are wrong, which they always can be count on to do, counted on to do, 
we don't have authority over them. But if they move within our jurisdiction, if they operate within our persons or within persons over whom we have authority, we absolutely have jurisdiction over them. And one of the sanctions is to send them to the abyss. Another of the sanctions is to simply let them go, cast them out, leave your defeated enemy. A third sanction is their destruction. Keep in mind that these are not eternal beings. Their spirit, their spirit beings, but their spirit did not come out of God. They're created spirits like the spirit of an animal, because they're serving creatures, they were created to serve. But the spirit of man came out of God, therefore the spirit of man is indestructible. A demonic spirit can be destroyed, scriptures are plain on the point. The book of Revelation chapter 20, speaking of the aftermath of the great judgment of God, the great white throne judgment, says, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. To be destroyed is death. We know death to be a spirit from Revelation chapter 6, which speaks of death and hell, as the rider on the white horse, or the rider on the pale horse, whose name was Death, and hell followed after him. Now, a place is called hell because that spirit known as hell has jurisdiction over those who are in it. People who violate uh, God's authority and are therefore subject to the enemy are handed into the custody of the spirit known as hell. Hell and death work together because sin exposes one to the sanction of death. The spirit of death has authority where man sins because the wages of sin is death. Man in that condition is separated from God and is subject to the jurisdiction of the spirit of death. Now everybody dies, so when it talks about death as a spirit, it's not talking about the condition of the exit of the spirit of a person from his body. It's appointed unto all men once to die. Death is separation from God, and therefore death is a reference to that spirit that has authority to confine a person who dies as a sinner into the control or domain of the spirit known as hell. Those are the last two who will be destroyed because it will be the end of the epoch in which death or hell have any relevance in, human, in the human history going forward from that point. They are the last two to be destroyed. My point is that demonic spirits can be destroyed. Now what is our authority to destroy them? Anything or anyone who profanes the temple of God is subject to being destroyed. Again from 1 Corinthians, whoever 
profanes the temple of God, him will God destroy. Now what is the temple of God? The dwelling place of God. Where does God dwell? He dwells in you. Be more specific. The only place in you in which God can dwell is your spirit, spirit to spirit. The Holy Spirit bears witness with your spirit that you are sons of God. The Spirit of God cannot dwell in your soul because the soul has a different life than the spirit. The life within the soul is suke, the life within the spirit is zoe, the life within the body is bios. It's obvious that there's an enormous distinction between all these three forms of life. The, the, the life in the bios is subject to death, to extinction. It is appointed unto men once to die. The soul may be sent to hell because of the condition of being separated from God, so the soul does not die when the body dies. The spirit returns to God who gave it because until the spirit is activated and only by the Holy Spirit may the spirit of man be activated, the spirit of man does nothing wrong. It has come out of God, it returns to God. So we have the authority, we are the only persons in creation, the spirit of man is the only thing in creation that cannot die. Angels were created when the heavens were created on the third day. They're creatures of that realm, but they're creatures. They were created just like the heavens were created. Anything that is created is subject to an end. It can be destroyed. The human spirit was never created, therefore it has no beginning, has no end. Its origin was in God and its final destination is in God. No angel has that position or right, so they can be extinguished. As we have seen, the spirit and the soul reside in the body, which is the temple of God, of the Spirit of God. Anywhere that God dwells, He's sovereign. If an evil spirit operates within the human body, albeit in the soul, its presence profanes the temple of God and it is subject to being destroyed. Other angels are the ones who can carry out that sentence. So in, to recap, our sanctions include the destruction of that spirit for its, for its trespass in the house of God, profaning the temple of the Most High by its existence. The second sanction is to send them in chains in darkness. And the angelic are the ones, the ones on our side who were sent to be bailiffs of our court are the ones to whom that charge is given, or we may dismiss them. I typically will dismiss a spirit if two things. Number one, I charge them not to interfere with the family line, with the subsequent generations, and if dismissing them 
allows them to be punished by the fact that the ones they once controlled now will arise and crush their heads. In other words, the ones that they once controlled will arise and will have overcome them in the very places where they held them captive. It's torturous to the demonic to see their former captives so thoroughly rule in the place where they were once captivated. Their distress is unimaginable. So I let them go if their torment is furthered by the ascendancy of those they captured to places of dominance over them. You have all three options. Typically the way you exercise the option, I will exercise the option as a judge in the Lord's court based on the quantum of harm that caused those uh, whose, whose, whose uh, emotions, the emotions of whose souls they have possessed to great harm. According to the quantum of harm, I decide their judgment. So for example, when I encounter a spirit of death, when I encounter a spirit of suicide, uh, these that intentionally intended to take the lives of persons, I judge them by their own actions, death to death. If their actions have not been um, of that moment, of that level of offense, but I don't want them uh, having any further <coughs> uh, ability to form schemes against the persons or their descendants, I send them to the abyss. And if, if, I, if releasing them continues to humiliate them, uh, I do that. So it's not a blanket statement. People often will ask me, why would you let any of them live if you have the authority to destroy them? Because they serve purposes even when they are allowed to live. But you measure, the, you measure the, the, the harm, you measure the sentence by the quantum of harm that they have committed. So then you, the next thing you do after you, and this was just to talk to you about your authority to judge angels. Now, in judging angels, the thing you must see is that commonly they hunt in packs. That's why they're referred to like predatory animals that hunt in packs or prides. They're referred to as dogs, for example. In this case, not domesticated dogs, but wild dogs. They're also referred to as um, uh, wolves. They're referred to as lions, seeking whom they may devour. So they work together to both entrap and keep entrapped the people of God. So if the activity in question was one of rejection, then you're likely to have a grouping of rejection, abandonment, unworthiness, um, 
irrelevance or unimportance, worthlessness. You're likely to have all of those working together. Then if, if it's a pack that's led by a spirit known as fear, you will have fear, anxiety, worry, and they will operate within a context of shame and depression. Because those, those elements make the people weak based on their fears. If they're operating in a pack that is, say, is led by um, uh, uh, humiliation, you will typically have something like um, adultery or fornication or pornography or um, uh, rape or, or uh, some, some of these uh, clusters together. I will usually call them to judgment as a cluster and I will usually sentence them as a cluster. So, but, but you will begin to see the groupings of these spirits. Rarely will you ever find them functioning as independent operators because they depend upon the lower hierarchy to maintain their hegemony and their control. And they will typically throw out the local, the, the lower levels of hierarchy if, if they see that they are being uh, brought into judgment, they will typically re- remove any support they have for the lesser, uh, um, the lesser authorities within their configuration. So that you think you got the big boy or the big dog, you'll think you got him when you got a lower level operative. So it requires some level of it requires an, a, a, a thorough understanding of the functioning of the discerning of spirits and the application of that to the categories of spirits. Now note, you are given the ability to discern spirits, 1 Corinthians 12, the, to some the discerning of spirits. Now I want to take time to recap what we do. We ended at the point of being able to to sentence them. When you actually come to the time of dealing with the demonic, what you do is you begin by having the persons fast and pray so that the soul is put down and the spirit is alert so that God begins to remind them of things. When you're actually doing uh, the process, you begin with the person's narrative and you let the spirit of discernment lead you to where the blocks were were installed by generations before them, by the abandonment of parents, etc. Then you move to the next category of how these, these definitions of themselves were brought into and held in place by the sins of others against them. You move from there to the the ratifications uh, by behavioral uh, uh, polity, by the way people did things, the way these things were ratified in their lives. Then you move to confessing 
you move to restripping the enemy from his authority by A, forgiving those who have trespassed, B, repenting of sins, of the sins that were done, and that leaves the enemy without power, without authority, subject now to your judgment. Do not go in to judge angels before you have stripped them from their authority. When you are judging them, recognize that God has given you angels now on our side to enforce the judgments of the court, realize that you have the authority to judge them because they have operated within your jurisdiction. Your your judging includes three uh, possible sanctions, uh, the destruction of, of the malefactors, in chains in darkness or simply letting them go. When you judge them, the angels will carry out your sentence. After that, the person is free but for the first time, he or she has been given back uh, emotions with which they are thoroughly unfamiliar. They don't know how to operate within those emotions because they've been denied access to those emotions or the emotions have been perverted for a long time. They don't know who, they still don't know who they are and they still don't, they're unfamiliar with the emotions that the enemy has co-opted. So one of the first things I do is I pray for an increase in the Holy Spirit in them. I will usually lay hands on them and ask the Lord to fill them with a new, fresh anointing of the Holy Spirit, sufficient to renew their minds and so that they can take possession of these new things that have been given to them. I want you also to realize that you won't get the return of all that is yours in a single day. Often there are two or three of these sessions because the first one is largely to disturb the the foundations the enemy has established. There may be a need for subsequent uh, uh, examination of any structure that might remain, but by now you know you will have been given enough relief to have confidence going in. Eventually you will come to the place where anything that pops up on your screen that the enemy is trying to either uh, assert against you or trying to gain some measure of re-entrance, you will see it. In between the time of the attack and the time you must respond, the Holy Spirit now is able to speak to you. Before you couldn't hear the Holy Spirit because He came up from inside your perimeter. Now you can see His effort because you have something to compare it with. And the Holy Spirit will speak to you the moment you sense you are under attack. When He speaks to you, simply do what He tells you. Say whatever He tells you to say, do what He tells you to do. The enemy will run from you at that point. So be aware of that and the, the final suggestion is subject yourself to the divine authority that God's placed in your life 
<coughs> that is capable of watching over your soul. That's your, not only your early warning system, but it also is that which helps you to formulate not only how you may uh, destroy your enemy's attack against you, but it serves to remind you of what God has already done and what you now are positioned to do as it regards your enemy. And in short, while you are learning to become familiar with and to operate within these emotions that had been denied to you for so long, submit yourself to the one that God has placed in authority over you and trust what they're saying to you because your awareness of these things, of the schemes of your enemy um, and your ability to, to function to resist the enemy is still pretty new. Whereas one watching over your soul both knows you and the schemes of your enemy and can guide you through this process at a time when you're learning how to engage all that you have been given back and incrementally that which you are about to be given back. With these things, there's still of course many other uh, ancillary and related subject matters. I don't have time now, nor is it the appropriate time to add those things on. The final thing I do is bless the person after I lay hands on them to receive, uh, to confirm who they are in the Spirit, to receive uh, uh, an updated, current, uh, sufficiently current anointing of the Holy Spirit, I then bless them because quite often the things that came into their lives uh, and flourished in the darkness of their lives were because those who had authority over them not only did not bless them, did not affirm them, but rather cursed them and were actually instruments of the enemy for their oppression. The final thing that I do is I bless them. This concludes uh, 13 sessions on blockage removal. Uh, we will add supplemental questions to this following our first training where we take input from all those who have heard these messages and have further questions. And as we give additional direct answers to those questions and expand some areas of this teaching that uh, we have not chosen to expand at this point. May the Lord bless you with the spirit of understanding that you might understand your authority in Christ over your enemy and may God free you from all the harm that the works of the devil have perpetrated upon your soul. May the Lord rescue you entirely from every scheme of your enemy as he continues the process of saving your soul. All this is about saving your soul, the process of the salvation of the soul, the rescue of the soul from the control of your enemy and the replacing of your soul 
under the rule of your spirit, so that as your spirit hears God, your soul might agree and together your spirit ruling your soul, your soul might execute the works of God as you are led to within your body. So that spirit, soul and body is sanctified, set apart for the purposes of God thoroughly and completely. I end with this thought from the book of 1 Thessalonians, May you be sanctified through and through, thoroughly. May your whole spirit, soul and body be presented blameless at the coming of the Lord. And the one who calls you is faithful and He will do it. And my hope is that this unveiling of the Word will help you understand how you ought to participate in that which God intends to do in your life. May grace and peace be your portion. In the name and by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have spoken these things. So be it. Amen.